Now, I have not got to listen to the classes Brad done, so uh, I don't want to uh, just re-emphasize things he has already said, uh, but at the same time, we have to bring us up to speed a little bit. You notice that in Judges 1, uh, as the various tribes were meant, were sent to go out and conquer their portions of the land, that Judah exercises a leadership position among the tribes. You see that in Judges 1, verses 1 and 2. That will be important in the book uh, as it goes along, particularly when we get to the end of the book. And you notice the statement in Judges 1, verse 19... The Lord was with Judah. In verse 22, the Lord was with them, speaking of the house of Joseph. Yet, what we repeatedly find is that these various tribes did not drive out the Canaanites. There was a failure to drive out the nations from the land. Remember in the book of Joshua, we saw that the people conquered the majority of the land, but still there were pockets for each tribe to continue to drive out the people. And you see this in Judges 1, in verse 19, verse 21, um, verse 29, verse 30, all these verses you see that they did not drive out the nations. So the Canaanites lived among them. And But I want you to notice a difference in verses 31 and 32. And, and again, I'm sorry if this is repetitive. But in verses 31 and 32, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants of Akko, or the inhabitants of Sidon, or of uh, Alab, or of Axib, or Hilba, or Aphek, or Rehob. The Asherites lived among the Canaanites. What is the difference in the wording there between the wording here. The Canaanites, the Israelites lived among the Canaanites as opposed to the Canaanites living among the Israelites. Yes. Not only is Israel not driving out the nations, but beginning with verse 31, the Canaanites are the major force. They're the major force in the land. So, this is a colossal failure. They're not even the dominant party there. You see the same thing in verse 33. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants of Beshemesh, but it says they lived among the Canaanites. But look at it a step worse in verse 34. The Amorites forced the sons of Dan into the hill country for they did not allow them to come down to the valley. And what you see in this passage is not only are they not the, the minor force, but they will not let them live in the land at all. And so the situation is becoming progressively worse. That some tribes are not really doing anything. They're not even taking the land which God had allotted to them. 
But, but I will say this. As we said in the book of Joshua, and we'll say it again here, and we'll say it many, many times here. The key character in this book is always the Lord, Yahweh. He is only mentioned specifically four times in chapter 1. But in chapter 2, he will be mentioned 18 times. His involvement is much more clear and much more clearly expressed when we get to chapter 2. Now, um, let's look at the text. In verses 1 through 5, Isaiah, would you read those loudly for everyone to hear? Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Baca, and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will drive them out before you, but they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. As soon as the angel of the Lord had spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept, and they called the name of the place Bakim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. Okay, okay. They come from Gilgal to Bokim. Bokim is mentioned in verse 1, verse 5. We'll talk a little bit about that word in just a moment. But you notice here it mentions the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord speaking. What does the word angel mean? Messenger. means messenger. And some have questioned whether this is a divine messenger or whether this is a human messenger. Is this an angel or is this a prophet? By the way, which prophet's name means my messenger? What was it? I was going to say Isaiah. She said Malachi. It's Malachi. Yes, Malachi. Malachi means my messenger. And you see a reference in Malachi 3.1, I will send my messenger. Some wonder whether that's a reference to Malachi himself in that passage. Uh, But nonetheless, the point, the angel can mean messenger. But here the Lord is going to speak to the people about their situation and their failure. Now, there are two other passages in the book like this that I we're not going to examine them now, but the Lord will speak to the people directly about their spiritual state in Judges 7 verses, Judges 6 verses 10 through 7, and Judges 10 verses 10 through 16. So three speeches of the Lord that are addressed to the people. And God first of all, emphasizes what the Lord has done for His people. In verse 1, what are the things that the text mentions the Lord has done for the people? Brought them out of Egypt. So, to, to 
put this in simpler words, just the Exodus. God brought them out of Egypt. That will be referred to again when we get to verse 12. That is the Old Testament event of salvation. And it's referred to over and over again. I brought you out of the land of Egypt. What else had He done for them? Okay, He gave them the promised land. And we saw that in the book of Joshua. He gave them the land of Canaan. He kept His promises to the people in giving them that land. Uh, Joshua 21 says He kept His promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And, And depending on how you divide this, there's one other thing that it may tell us the Lord has done for the people. What did He do? Made a covenant covenant with them. So He brought them out of Egypt. He gave them the promised land. He made a covenant. Made a covenant with them. And we see that at Mount Sinai among other places uh, in the Old Testament. But this is God's goodness. The Lord initiates all these blessings. The Lord is the one who takes the step to bring Israel to Him. People have often compared uh, the covenant of Israel with covenants we have found from great kings in the ancient Near East, uh, Hittite vassal treaties. But one of the first obligations of making a covenant with the Lord was that you made a covenant with no other king. Your loyalty was exclusively to the king that you made a covenant with. And this is true not only of man's covenants, but this is true of God's covenant. God made a covenant with the people in verse 1. But what's the people's response? The people's were told to make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. They were to tear down their altars, but they have not obeyed. So this is what the Lord has done, but their responsibilities to God, their responsibilities to the God who had entered into this covenant with them, is they make no covenant with anyone else, no covenant with any other God, with any other people, and that you tear down the altars of the nation. Tear down the altars of these peoples. Look as you keep your finger in Judges 1 or a marker in Judges 1. Let's look at a couple of passages in Exodus. In Exodus chapter 23, first of all. Exodus 23. This ties with this passage in several respects. In Exodus 23 verse 20, God said, Behold, I'm going to send an angel before you to guard you along the way and to bring you into the place which I have prepared. So you notice that the angel is mentioned in Exodus 23 verse 20. And Exodus 23, verse 23. And in verse 24, You shall not worship their God, nor serve them, 
nor do according to their deeds. Don't worship them. Don't serve them. Don't do according to their deeds. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their sacred pillars in pieces. In Exodus 23, verse 24, break their their items of worship to pieces. In verse 32, you shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. So don't make any covenant with them. Exodus 23, verse 32. Now, we find the same thing, same kinds of things, if you look in Exodus 34. In Exodus 34. You notice in verse 12, watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going. So, don't make any covenant with them. Exodus 34 and verse 12. In verse 13, But rather you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim, for you are not to worship any other god. And we find uh, that if they play the harlot in verse 15 and 16, uh, then then God uh, will be very jealous uh, over them. But they're to tear down their altar. So my point is, is God saying anything here that people haven't heard before? Not saying anything that they haven't heard. It's the same thing the Lord has told them all along the way right after they left the land of Egypt. But the people have not obeyed. And in verse 3 of Judges 2, Therefore I will drive them out before you, but they shall be as thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Okay, I'm hoping that some of you in particular recognize that phrase. I'm not going to drive them out anymore. Where have we seen that? Okay, Joshua 23 in Joshua's farewell address in verse 12 If you ever go back and cling to the rest of these nations, these which remain among you, and intermarry with them, so that you associate with them, and they with you, know with certainty the Lord your God will not continue to drive out these nations before you. Now, how did we state the other day that that would be lex talionis? The punishment fitting the crime. How does that work there? They become like the people, therefore they are treated like the people. Okay. If you are going to associate with them, make covenants with them, and do these things, I'm not going to take care of this for you. I'm not going to drive them out for you, if they trust in him, 
even though these enemies are stronger than they are, mightier than they are, God will give them victory. But if they don't trust in the Lord, if they don't trust in the Lord, God will not do it and are obedient to Him. And they will be snares to you. And the people respond to this in verse 4 and 5. They respond to this by lifting up their voices and weeping. So they named the place Bochim, and there they sacrificed to the Lord. Now 2.4 tells us the people wept. What the name Bochim mean, and I believe that here in Judges 2, some of you may be able to look this up real quick, and I believe this is the only place, this, the only time this place is mentioned. I might be wrong about that. But Bochim is actually the plural form of the word for web and means something like weepers. So the name given to the place commemorates the mourning, the weeping, the sadness that was there. But one of the things about this that is good is this is one of the closest things maybe the closest thing to a real repentance in the book of Judges. It may have been short-lived, but it may have been real. They're confronted with their sin. They lift their voices and weep. And it says they sacrifice to the Lord. Now, I ran across something in one commentary that made me check this out. I don't know that I would have thought about this. Do you know that sacrifice is only mentioned one other time in Judges? And you know what it is? When they have captured Samson, the Philistines have a great sacrifice to their God. So this is the only time that Israel is said to respond this way. The only time They have been told of their sins. They weep. They offer sacrifices to God. What questions or thoughts do you all have right there? um, Part of the, the weeping reminds me of like Judas. In that it was ineffective, though. And so, like, I, yeah, I have repentance now with a question mark whether it was yes. repentance or they were like, oh no, we messed up, so we're not going to get the land for free anymore. Um, as to why they were weeping. Obviously, if the repentance was sustained, a lot of things in the book of Judges would have been written. Um, God says this to the people, and this is a passage I think of in line with that, Sarah, is Hosea 6, Hosea 6, 4 through 6. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loyalty is like a morning cloud and like the dew that goes away. Therefore, I will hew them in pieces 
by the prophet. I have slain them by the words of my mouth and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. Then he says, I desire uh, mercy or loyalty rather than sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But their loyalty was uh, like a morning cloud that's there for a short time and vanishes away. And so uh, at least this repentance um, was not as long lived. That's true. Tony? I can't help but um, go to the choices that we make there in verse 3. And his statement that they will be thorns in your side and and their gods will be a a trap or a snare for you makes me think about uh, choices that we as parents make to live in the land and um, uh, with the expectation that we won't be trapped. We won't be snared, and um, still the the traps are there, and the thorns are there, and then we're surprised when we get uh, when we get trapped. Yes, yes. I that I'm glad you pointed that out, and I'd forgotten that I had overlooked that so easily, and that's a a good application of it. Look at Joshua twenty three thirteen again. I know we read part of that. Uh, this whole verse of Judges 2-3 is closely associated with Joshua 23-13. Joshua 23-13, Know with certainty the Lord your God will continue to drive out these nations before you. Will not continue to drive out these nations before you. But listen to these terms. They will be a snare and a trap to you, a whip on your sides, Thorns in your eyes until you perish from the good land which the Lord your God has given you. Only one of those terms is used in Judges 2-3. But God told them, if you don't drive out these nations, I'm not going to continue to strengthen you, to drive them out, and they are ultimately going to be your undoing. Now, the older I get, the more I think about this. There may be things that we have to do and battles that we may have to face that are unpleasant, just like I'm sure driving the Canaanites out of the land was unpleasant. But if we do not fight those battles, our children will pay the price. And that's going to happen to Israel's children as well. So may God help us to see that. What what other thoughts, Andrew? Is there any rhyme or reason to the the way that each tribe responds to uh, driving out the the Canaanites? I mean, we see Judah and Simeon doing pretty well, and then. It goes downhill from there. Yes. Is there any reason? Well, I do think one of the things that it shows, Andrew, is what we're going to find is, in in Judges 2, we'll say this in verses 11 through 19, there's a downward spiral in the book. Things get further and further. And I think that's reflected even in Judges 1. But I think that the various responses of these tribes would be an indicative of something about the level of faith in those tribes. And the thing that 
that is really sad, Dan won't take the country that God gave them. And so at the end of the book of Judges, they're going to end up attacking an innocent people that God didn't tell them to destroy to take away their land. So I think it's just indicative of the different levels of faith in people. Okay? Sarah? Along those lines, I've got a note that says, Dan was the least successful in conquering the land and they were the most idolatrous tribe in further history. Good point. Very good point. Uh, Golden calves at Bethel and Dan in uh, the book of in, in the, the King Jeroboam's time. Very good point. Uh, verses uh, 6 through 10. Paul, would you want to read these? And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel each went to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at Timnah Heres in the mountains of Ephraim on the north side of Mount Gosh. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Okay, very good. Very good. Now, these verses... These verses here in Judges 2, verses 6 to 9, are paralleled or similar to, however you want to say it, Joshua 24, 28 through 31. There's a little different order, though. There's a different order reflecting a different emphasis. What is a statement in this case in Judges? What are some things in Judges that are not in Joshua or is there anything um, in Joshua not in Judges or that, that stands out? They don't mention the priest in Judges. That Eliezer. Okay, yes. It, it doesn't mention, yes, the next verse that Eliezer died and was buried, or Joseph's bones buried, yes, those are not specifically mentioned here. Um, but 2 verse 10 is unique. 2 verse 10 particularly is unique to the book of Judges. But, but I will say, and, and, and um, I thought this was an interesting point. And, and actually, I don't know if I recognized this was true before reading and rereading again for this class. This is the way Joshua 24 says it. And I want you to look at Judges 2.7 and see if you pick out what Judges added to this. Joshua 24.31 Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua and had known all the deeds of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Do you see anything in Judges 2 that wasn't in Joshua 24, 31. There's only one thing. 
And at first I didn't catch it. But in 2-7, they saw all the great work of the Lord. That word great is added to the text. Now, what does that mean? What significance does it have? I think this makes the disobedience of the people even more inexcusable. They not only saw the works of the Lord, they saw the great works of the Lord. They saw the sea divided. They saw uh, the manna raining down every day. They saw the Canaanites fall before them, though they were stronger and mightier. And because they were the great works of the Lord, the people had even more reason to obey Him. And so I thought that was significant. At first, I didn't catch that, but I thought that was very significant. But the text tells us that Joshua, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. The, in the book of Joshua, Joshua is called servant at the end, but who is constantly called a servant of the Lord in the book of Joshua? Moses is. Moses repeatedly is called Joshua. But in this book, Joshua alone is called the servant of the Lord by the writer. Now, I will say as a kind of uh, question to that or an asterisk by that, Samson calls himself your servant. He refers to himself as your servant in 15 verse 18. But the writer doesn't describe him that way. Joshua, the servant of the Lord. These, uh, some of these judges do not seem to rise to that level to have such a noble description. Okay? Now, all that generation was gathered to their fathers there arose another generation that did not know the Lord. Psalm 78, which we covered recently on Tuesday nights in the first eight verses, just time after time after time emphasizes parents teaching their children about God. Parents teaching their children about God. It emphasizes it. It wears it out. It, 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 says, it says it in so many different ways. Now, do I know specifically that was the failure here? Maybe they tried to communicate it and the generation just didn't get it. Maybe they tried to. But as parents, we must seek to diligently talk to our children when we rise up, when we lie down, when we sit, when we walk in the way, as Deuteronomy 8 says, to leave them with the most important thing that we can leave them with, faith in God. But sometimes, and this passage is very, illustrates this very well, It is hard for another generation to truly enter in 
and appreciate the experiences of a former one. Even though they saw the great works of God, another generation arises that does not know the Lord. Always faith in God is just a generation from being extinct. Sarah had her hand up a second ago and then Tony. But, but did you still have your question or what's the answer? Well, it, it was just <laughs> that um, in 24-28 in Joshua, Joshua dismissed the people each to his inheritance versus 2-6 when Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went went each to his inheritance to possess the land. And Yes, that is he, unique. You're I right. get the impression that in, in Joshua it sounds like it's a done deal and the judges it's like there's some work to do. Yeah. Yeah. Joshua just kind of presents it from Joshua's view. Here in Judges we're going to see the aftermath. You know, what happens after Joshua died as the book opens. I guess I, I was going to ask the question in verse 10. Is there anything in those words, the way that they're said, after them another generation arose that makes you know that that is the next generation and not multiple generations because what we see in our society and I think what you even sense uh, from the time of Joseph mm -hmm. is that after Joseph, it's not necessarily Joseph's kids, but it could be grandkids or great-grandkids mm -hmm. and the the responsibility is with every generation to maintain that, but there's this gradual decline. Um, mm -hmm. And um, so it, it doesn't have to be a failure. It doesn't have to be a complete failure in my leadership, um, but I'm a link, and if I'm a weak link in a, in a longer chain of generations, I still have played, still have played a role. Yes. The way I would answer that, Tony, is the words, um, word generation is singular. And the word another, which would also be, which also could be plural, like others in this case, if, if the, uh, if the uh, term generation was plural. So both of those are singular. So um, while... To the next, the failure of the parents, not... Uh, multiple generations. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't. It seems to be to that specific generation that comes after. Though, though, what you're saying does seem to be the case because this book will cover a long period of time, and Brad may have discussed some of that, and uh, with with you all, and we'll, we'll get into some of that as we go throughout the book because the book covers a period of about three hundred years, um, probably. Anything else that you have? Just that the, this generation was kind of busy conquering the land, so wasn't that more important than teaching their children? <laughs> well, we have to, as parents, multitask, okay. no doubt. No doubt we do. Um, <laughs> Justin, would you want to read 11 through 19? Sure. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. 
So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies, so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress. When the Lord raised up, uh, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after the other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of the practices or their stubborn ways. Okay, very good, very good. So, here is our cycle of judges. No, Brad said that he has went. He went over some of this um, in talking with you all, and this is a good passage to kind of introduce the book of Judges as a whole. Uh, but um, what we want to see is their attitude toward the Lord, how they treat the Lord. And then how they treat the Baals or other gods. And I want you to be looking for terms that describe their relationship with each of these. But first of all, we see Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. That phrase is going to be used seven times in the book. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And so it's going to be used repeatedly. I think when we read that phrase throughout the book, that here we have basically a shorthand introduction to what that means. That they did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because this is going to spell that out. The sin... How would you answer this question? The sin of the Old Testament is idolatry. Idolatry is the sin of the Old Testament. Now we do find the people murmuring and complaining in the wilderness. That was most characteristic of them there. But it is idolatry that is really the sin of the Old Testament. Now, what are some terms that describe their response to the Lord and their response to the Baals. What, what, what are some terms that you see there? They served the Baals and okay. forsook God. They served the Baals, they forsook God. Now, the same term that was used in chapter 2 and verse 7, the people served the Lord, is now used for their service to a foreign god. They served the Baals. They served the Asheroth. And that's also used in verse 13. And they forsook the Lord. They forsook the Lord. Now look back 
in Joshua 24 to see something of the significance of this. In Joshua 24, verses 14 and 15. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and truth. Put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. And serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your fathers served who were beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Verse 16. The people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. They do both the thing they promised they wouldn't do in Joshua 24 16. They said we will not serve other gods. They served other gods. They said we will not forsake the Lord and they forsake the Lord. Look at verse 20. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and do harm to you and consume you after He has done good to you. So Joshua 24, when Joshua was reminding the people of the responsibilities of their covenant with God, the God who has shown them this mercy, and He warns them, He's a holy God, He's a jealous God. They say, we will not forsake the Lord. We will not serve foreign gods. And they do both of these things. They forsook the God of their fathers. And notice in verse 12, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. Again, the Exodus is referred to. The Exodus should have forever sealed the people's loyalty to God. God brought them out of slavery. God brought them out of bondage. God brought them to be His people and He would be their God. But they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They followed other gods from among the gods of the people that were around them, bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. I looked up the word provoked. The only time I found it used of a human relationship was in 1 Samuel 1, 6 and 7. You remember? Penina would provoke Hannah when she saw that Hannah was the favorite. So she would irritate her, aggravate her, however you want to translate. It's always, most always used of provoking the Lord. And almost every passage that uses it, idolatry is the sin. It's kind of like marriage. Or may, may commit some sin. May do wrong. And we may not like it. We may even uh, disagree about it. 
But there's kind of one sin that rises above the other. I can remember talking to a lady who her and her husband are not not living together at the time. It, it's had a good story. They've been reconciled after many difficulties. But she told me, she says, if I found out he was with another woman any of these times, I know it would just utterly crush me. She knew he already wasn't being faithful by moving out. As far as faithful to fulfill the responsibilities of Ephesians 5. But, but she said that. And, and, and that just reminded me how crushing that is to a person. What is God's response when He brings us out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? Then the people turn and worship other gods. This is a profound hurt and a source of the Lord's anger in verse 14. In verse 14, the anger of the Lord, by the way, we could write down 2, 12, and 13, where you find that word for sake. Also, they bowed down to these other gods in 2, 12. In verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel, and He gave them into the hand of plunderers who plundered them. He could he sold them into the hand of their enemies around them so they could no longer stand before their enemies. One of the consequences of this sin is they could not stand. Do you remember in Joshua 1 verse 5, no one shall stand before you, Joshua. No one will be able to stand before you. Now, the same promise that was applied to Joshua, uh, the, the, the opposite of that is said here. They could not stand before their enemies because they are being unfaithful. And wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil. As the Lord had spoken, as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were severely distressed. Now, the book of Judges is going to be a book where the people are generally unfaithful to God. And the anger of the Lord is a very real subject. He is provoked, verse 12. He is, the anger is poured out in verse 14 and in verse 20. But the book also teaches the mercy, the compassion of God. Look at verse 16. The Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of their plunderers. Verse, verse 18 says the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. Now, how many of you have learned the cycle this way? This is the way uh, often I've taught it. Sin, um, sin, should we go this way? Sin, punishment, crying to the Lord and 
deliverance. Which of those elements, I put crying to the Lord, I put crying to the Lord instead of repentance because I think that's a... Uh, but which of those elements is missing right here in Judges 2? They're not even crying to the Lord at all, are they? God, that, that doesn't mean... I'm not trying to minimize the importance of repentance. But I am saying that God is often taking steps in His mercy toward these people even when they haven't cried out for deliverance. We're going to find that's going to be missing in some of the judges' account. They're content to be slaves. But God wants to deliver them. Okay, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Um, I've forgotten Brad was going to be away today. Uh, I'm going to try to get some questions, a few questions for you all to answer at least through 311. Uh, to see that for next time. But thank you uh, very much. God bless.